Father, I do thank you again for this morning. Thank you for bringing us here together to, to worship you, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to love one another, to, to share your uh, good news with one another again from heart to heart, God. And I pray in this place right now, you just saturate it with your Holy Spirit, that you speak to us through this message that uh, you would come right now, right now, and move in power. Amen. Amen. So, Claudine last week did a great job uh, talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. She talked about declaring the kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom of God, and, uh, and we're going to continue that journey. We've been doing this series for a while, and uh, we're on to kind of part nine, and uh, Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and uh, we've been taking accounts essentially from Luke's gospel and describing them to you, and today we're in chapter 20, so if you want to turn there, you can. And preceding this uh, short passage today, Jesus has cleansed the temple. And in case you don't know what that means, he, he went in there, became righteously angry, turned over the tables of commercial uh, money changers, uh, and, and drove people out. And uh, we have a couple of accounts that report that. So you can read that in your own time if you want to. And this was a symbolic act, a powerful act from Jesus, um, who draws the attention then, even more so, of the temple leaders who then come to challenge his authority and challenge him about what he's been doing. And so you can read this uh, either on the screen or in your own Bible uh, from Luke 20, verses 1 to 8. This is what it says. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Hmm. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Amen. So Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, enters Jerusalem, heralded by crowds. And rather than bringing an army with him, as some people might have expected the Messiah to do, he brings a ragtag bunch of disciples, goes outside the city to rest, and then comes back in the next day to the temple, which would have been a large area with the kind of Holy of Holies in the middle. And in this large area, these kind of courts, people were milling around because Passover was coming. And having cleansed the temple these, uh, and encountered him there doing that, the Sanhedrin, this temple council, have um, noticed Jesus, to say the least. And they decide it's time to challenge his authority. And through a short Q&A, they get a window of understanding into Jesus' authority, which then reveals the stance of the human heart. It actually also reveals the source of Jesus' the, uh, authority, and then presents them with a challenge as well. And so we're going to explore the, the, heading, uh, sorry, the passage through three headings. They are the authority of the king, the origin of the king, and treat Jesus as king. And we're going to start with the authority of the king. And so up until this point in the Jesus story, uh, he's been doing amazing demonstrations of the kingdom of God, his kingdom. He's made the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak. He's even raised people from the dead. 
And side by side with that, he's been saying astonishing things, delivering amazing teaching. He's been superseding the Old Testament law, for example, and this is a paraphrase. He said, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's from the book of Matthew. And this continues, this kind of teaching, this kind of behavior uh, continues in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus begins teaching in public and proclaiming the good news. And this upsets the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were a council of about 71 people, priests, rabbis, elders, who sent a delegation to go and speak to Jesus. It showed how serious this matter was to them. And they make one demand and they ask one question. They say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now, through word and deed, the authority of these temple leaders has been defied by Jesus. And they want to know what gives Jesus the right to come and mess up their perfectly lucrative system in the temple. And in brief, the temple rulers were doing pretty well out of the temple business. The temple courts were being used for these commercial activities. When people would come to the temple, they would sacrifice animals to atone for their sin. And they thought, well, what a great place to sell animals. And so you've got people around the temple courts going, pigeons, pigeons, get your pigeons. And therefore, someone would buy a pigeon, take it, sacrifice it. Because people were wary. They didn't want to lose the animal they were bringing to sacrifice along the way on their journey to the temple. And so this system was kind of set up by those leaders. And this Jesus who comes along defies all that. And he looks nothing like the Messiah they wanted, as I mentioned. Nothing like the conquering hero to kick out the Romans that they wanted. And so provokes them to respond. And, and so through this interrogation, they're trying to get Jesus to say that he is God. But before we move on to Jesus' reply, I just want to observe and reflect with you on people's responses to authority in the form of the true king, Jesus. So let's look at the crowds. The crowds, they welcome Jesus. And we talked about this a bit in life group uh, just this week, just gone by. And as he enters in, the, the delegates, uh, sorry, as he enters the city of Jerusalem, they are cheering his name. They are hanging on his words when he teaches in the temple. And these are the kind of regular folk, those who seemingly don't have a lot to lose by listening and following and submitting to Jesus. And then in contrast, you've got these temple leaders who have got a lot to lose uh, by submitting to Jesus. They don't want him to be the Messiah. They don't want to submit to him. They could lose a lot materially if they did. Now, I don't know which one you identify with more, but whatever you, wherever you land between crowds and Sanhedrin, well, we're all in the same boat as both of those parties. We're all human. You see, naturally, we challenge Jesus for authority over our own lives. And truth be known, we all want to be the king or queen of our own life. And this is a chief issue for humans because at root, we don't want to be owned or beholden to anyone. And this kind of strange paradox plays out in the world around us. And it can kind of be summarized by three subheadings, want, need, and hate. You see, humans on the whole, they, they do want to be under authority and they do need to be, but we hate it as well. And so in other words, deep down, we all want to have a king, we all need a king, but at the same time, we all reject and even hate the king the one in authority over us. And so we'll just explore those three headings. We'll start with wanting a king. So what evidence do we have to support the idea that humans want to have king, a king in their lives? Well, all you have to do is look to legends and stories initially. 
You've got Robin Hood, where the good king comes, the bad king, sorry, the good king leaves, the bad king takes over, and Robin Hood fights until the big good king comes back. You've got stories like King Arthur. You've got stories like Lord of the Rings, where the king of the north will come and make it all good. You could review films. You could look at plays on a stage. You could look at literature and see that there's this desire for someone to come and conquer, someone to be in charge, someone we can all look to and go, they're good, I'm with them. And it's played out in that way. Another thing that's interesting is um, observable in nations that don't have an actual king or queen. Like we have a royal family, lots of people like them. I get that lots of people here, I think, actually like them, which is great. But in countries where there's no power associated with them or where they don't have a king or queen, the nation makes kings and queens. They make kings and queens out of celebrities or sports heroes or actors or comedians and they elevate them above all others, and they, they watch their, their show, or they go to see them in the stadium, or they buy their merchandise, and they've got the cap and the jacket and the shoes, and they make them into this kind of thing about person above all others. It plays out on a more personal level as well. Um, some people want their romantic savior to come in, sweep them off their feet, to make them their king and my queen. I think typically rappers say, oh yeah, she's my queen. Like They're kind of like making them royalty in their life, in their heart. And, um, and I actually have personal experience of this in my life. I, I, ha- I became a Christian. I prayed for a girlfriend. God gave me one. And I, I very quickly made her queen of my life. Everything so revolved around her. Everything became about her and everything she would do for me and how it would make everything better. And we'd do this and this and this. And then that idol was smashed by God. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, indeed. But this is kind of what happens. We want these people, we want these kings and queens in our life. But the truth is, all of the above, the things that I've just mentioned, they're false kings and queens. Even if we allow them to have authority over us in our life, they can't actually satisfy, but we all want them. We all want a king. But we don't just want a true king, we need one as well. Just like children, uh, if you're raising them, they need boundaries and they thrive with boundaries. People who set the kind of lines, uh, those are in authority, they do that. And, they need, and we need leadership, we need someone to follow, someone to belong to, someone to ally, ally, ally with. And, and that's kind of just how we, we work, we need that as well, even though we might deny it at times, we'll get to that in a minute. But we need this king figure, we need this in our life. And some time ago, if you're studying, maybe you're studying history at A-level or GCSE, you'll know all about the various kings and queens and their ups and downs, the good things, the bad things they did. But nowadays, that's not, again, how we're set up, is it? Nowadays, we have in a lot of countries, instead of a genuine king or queen, a monarch ruling, we, we have democracy. And that's been introduced and it's heralded as fair. And, it, and I, I would be one that says it does a lot of good. It really does. Democracy is good in a lot of ways. But I heard a well-known preacher say when I was researching kind of for this message, uh, something that actually I still believe rings true. And that is actually that Christians deep down, we know that democracy is only medicine, it's not food. And you can't live on medicine. You see, there's only one true king who claims to be the bread of life. And Christians follow him. We know that actually... There's one true king who we will be under when we get to heaven, which we've kind of talked a bit about today and sung about today as well. And that's good. You see, we want a king. We need a king. And the reality is, if anyone did try and take that place of king or queen in your life, the truth is that actually human beings are so simple that none of us are fit to rule anyway. 
You might have read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, or I'm, I'm reading them to Reuben at the moment. He has no idea what's going on, but I really am enjoying the stories. Uh, I've, never, I've never read them before in my life. And even the kings and queens, Susan, Lucy, etc., Peter, Edmund, they mess up as well. And, and there's only one king in that story who doesn't mess up, and that is Aslan. And Aslan represents Jesus. Spoilers, sorry, uh, if you haven't read those. But uh, you'll enjoy them. Just read them. They're great. So, and I'm learning a lot. Anyway, we won't, go, <laughs> we won't get onto that. And so, humanly, if we want a king, we need a king. You might ask then, all right, so if we want this, we need this. How do we simultaneously hate the king. Well, the cry of I want to be my own is the basic impulse of every human heart. There was a man called George MacDonald, a Scottish writer who inspired C.S. Lewis, and he said, the central conviction of hell is this, I am my own. And what he means is that this conviction is shared by all who reject Jesus. And it's the same conviction that creates hell in all sorts of places. For example, if you apply that to friendships, marriages, teams at work, classmates at school, if you go around saying, I am my own, I will do what I want, get out of my way, I'm just going to put me first, like that, that approach creates hell because it's not sacrificial, it's not kingly or queenly, it is selfish. And that's the cry of our hearts, we're all sinful. And so that's the problem that we face, is that actually none of us could rule. And we, we hate the king at the same time because we, we don't want him to be in charge, but, we, but at the same time we do. But, and it's, a, it's this difficult situation. And, and there's no more, you don't need to look any further for evidence of this kind of cry of, I am my own, uh, but to just spend time with a small child. And I've had it communicated to me many times recently uh, that my child wants to be his own. Take the shackles off me, Dad. I'm going this way. And of course, I have the power at the moment to scoop him up and say, no, we're going this way. And, uh, and sometimes he fights it and he doesn't like it. And he's saying, I am my own. I can do what I want. And that, that's all you need for evidence to prove that actually everyone's heart says that same thing. And so that's where both the Sanhedrin are in the story. That's where the crowds are. See, they may all know of Jesus. Some may have followed him for some time. Some have been angered by Jesus, the true king, but very few, perhaps only his closest followers, will have actually submitted to Jesus as the true king at this point, the one who has ultimate authority over their lives. And so now we're going to see how the true king, Jesus, responds to the challenge of the temple rulers under our second heading. That's the origin of the king. So they said this in verses 2 to 4, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said, who gave you this authority? He, that's Jesus, replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? So the Sanhedrin have set their snare, their trap, surrounded by a crowd. They want Jesus to declare that he is God, that he has authority. He wants them, uh, they want him to commit blasphemy in their eyes. But instead, he responds with a question, which is always a very clever thing to do. Uh, whenever I read Jesus doing that, I love it. And he points them to a man who was executed two or three years before this moment, John the Baptist. And we're just going to talk briefly about him just to give a bit of the context of that. You see, John's baptism could also be understood as his ministry. And he came out of the wilderness and began physically baptizing people in the River Jordan. And his baptism was one of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. 
And some people wondered when he started doing this in Israel, is he the Messiah? Is he the one we've waited for? But John is very quick to say, no, I'm just pointing you towards the one who is to come, the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the one whose shoes I'm not uh, worthy to untie. And Jesus also goes to be baptized and fulfill all righteousness. And at his baptism, a pretty amazing supernatural event takes place. In Matthew 3:16 to 17, it says this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's a pretty cool baptism. <laughs> I mean, you've probably been to some baptisms. You probably know what happens with the water, and everyone goes, way when they come out of the water. The Holy Spirit and God the Father's voice came at Jesus' baptism. It's, it's this rare moment in Scripture where you see the Trinity kind of all doing something at once. One's really wet, comes out of the water. One comes from the sky, and then the other one speaks, and it's just amazing. And I'm pretty sure if you'd been there, you would have told someone about it. You'll never guess what I saw happen the other day. And that's what, hap- that's what they would have done. They would have told people. They would have been well aware, both the crowd, the Sanhedrin, that actually Jesus, when he was baptized by John, well, that just wasn't a normal baptism. That was something amazing. And when Jesus comes out of the water, that's where his supernatural supreme authority began. If you like Greek, I think it's exousia. Uh, is, is the word they use to describe it in the New Testament. And it's this word that means ultimate authority, supreme, supernatural power. And it's the word the Sanhedrin used to ask Jesus, who gave you this supernatural, supreme authority? And so John's own prophetic status was a signpost to the coming Messiah. And so Jesus asked them if John truly was a prophet sent from God or not. And then in verse 5, it says this. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded John was a prophet. See, their discussion is telling. The answer from heaven means they're saying that John was a prophet and Jesus has divine authority because he's the Messiah. But if they say of human origin, neither John nor Jesus, according to them, were acting on God's behalf. And that would have been a statement that incited violence against them, stoning, which was known as the judgment of zeal, used to get rid of people that the Sanhedrin themselves couldn't legally convict. So do you see how they've fallen into their own trap? If they say that of human origin, they will incite the crowd against themselves, something that they instituted as a way of getting rid of people that didn't tell the truth, (laughs) which is... um, well, it's not funny, but at the same time, it kind of is like, well, you know, you've put yourself in this position, guys. And so there's a choice for these leaders. Do they choose life and confess Jesus to be the person he claims to be, scuppering their own authority, surrendering it? Or do they choose death as a result of denying that John was a prophet and in turn that Jesus is the Messiah? Now, it's either bow to Jesus or reject him. It's love him or hate him. It's life or it's death. Jesus doesn't give them a third option. The Venerable Bede sums up uh, the Sanhedrin's position rather well. He says, they fear the possibility of being stoned to death 
but they fear the true confession even more. So the pressure builds, the huddle is whispering together, and then they turn around and they say, we don't know where it was from. Hmm. They've only been given two choices, and yet they create a third. They lie. The temple leaders, the priests, the scribes, the teachers, the ones who you would expect to know the most about God, about the scriptures, they don't know. <laughs> no, they do know, but they are unwilling to declare it. And Jesus replies, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And Jesus, he's not being snooty, he's not being petty here, he's simply unflappable. Because Jesus will not declare what his audience is not willing to hear. And this is fascinating, I don't know if you've ever encountered this in life, but when you witness to someone, you give them everything they need to believe and take a step of faith and, and trust in Jesus, but for, they just won't do it. It's as if there's an invisible obstacle stopping them from crossing the threshold, and more often than not, I discover that actually it's that they're just unwilling. They just don't want to surrender. They don't want to give up authority. I met, met with friend, a friend of mine for years having breakfast, and he knew everything was true. He agreed with everything I said, but he still wouldn't do it. And I'm still praying for him. You'll be pleased to know. You see, to those who are unwilling to commit themselves, Jesus commits not himself. The only way that you can become a friend of Jesus's is to admit that you're his enemy to admit that you're against him. And his enemies won't admit that in the shape of the Sanhedrin. You see, Jesus will lead people to the truth that they claim to desire, just like he does here. And then he'll invite them to cross the threshold into faith in him alone. And in this instance, the interrogators know Jesus is king and has authority and is God, but they don't treat him uh, accordingly. They can't bring themselves to declare it. Now this brings us to our final heading. Treat Jesus as king. You see, Jesus is the only true king. Uh, if you missed that theme during our worship, uh, where were you? <laughs> but Jesus is the true king. And we, we've sung about him. We've declared him this morning. And that was fantastic. And I was thinking about this and thinking about how we treat kings or, and queens, how should, how should they be treated? And, uh, and am I treating Jesus as such? And I found myself being really, really challenged by this. Um, it left me thinking, okay, what do I need to do to reflect the kingship of Jesus in my life? And uh, I did some reading and studying and um, was helped out and found some headings to really summarize what I think we need to do uh, in order to, to treat Jesus as king. Um, so we're just going to go through them. They are obey, submit, rely, and expect. And we're going to start with obey. And it might seem pretty simple to start with. Um, in my mind, I think, okay, I'll just do what the king says. But it's not so simple as that, is it? Because I can confess to you right now, I don't act in perfect obedience to Jesus all the time. And sometimes I'll treat Jesus more like a consultant than a king. And it's a, it's a little bit like this, I suppose. Um, if you imagine a parent telling their child to clean their room, uh, um, this situation can kind of go one or two ways, I guess. Uh, they can go, yeah, okay, no problem, I'll do it right now for you, because I love you and you're great. 
if you've had that experience, but no, I'm joking, so let's not do that. Um, but it can also go the other way of, um, uh, of treating the parent more like a consultant. Well, that's an interesting idea, mum. I'm going to go away and think about it for a while. Then when I've decided whether I think it's a good idea, I might do it or I might not. And I've thought about it, and I'm not going to do it. Thanks very much. <laughs> you might have had that experience, which is uh, more treating these like, oh, that's a good idea. I could go and witness to that person. I could tell them I'm a Christian. I could. I could. Actually, all right, I'll admit it. I'm too scared. Or I just don't want to. Or I'm a bit tired. Or, you know, you, you, can, you can do that. You can treat him. So is it king or consultant? Well, I have to confess, sometimes it's not always king <laughs> for me. Um, sometimes I'll even just bounce an idea off Jesus, knowing what I'm going to do already. Uh, how, but how dare I? I mean, that is ridiculous, isn't it? I know what I want to do, so I'm going to do it, but I'll just, I'll just ask you, okay, yeah, and I'll do what I want. That's not how kingship works. And it's a, it's a lifetime, I'm sure, of training how to do this. But we have to ask ourselves, what am I doing? And, and Lord, please help me with, the, with this as well. It's revealed in the choices we make uh, day to day. I'll give you another example. Say at school, someone has uh, been, been mean to you. Um, someone's kind of had a go at you. What does Jesus say to do for those kind of people? And this could be in the context of work as well. What does he say do to, to those who kind of persecute you? He says, pray for that person. Love that person. It's clear, and it's in his word. It's a direct order from the king, but in response, we'll say, well, actually, no thanks. Don't really feel very loving towards them right now. They were just mean to me. But then we've done it. We've disobeyed the king. And other times it's conditional obedience. I'll do this for you if you do that for me. And that still not, is not genuine. And the truth is that when it comes to obedience to the king, it, it often means going outside your comfort zone. And it could be stepping out uh, on a Sunday morning with a spiritual gift to encourage everyone who's gathered here. It could be when giving. It could be when witnessing. It could be like going to Berlin with me. That could be a huge step of obedience for you because it's just not what you would do. And you would say maybe something like, oh, I'm not like that. I don't really, I'm, I'm introverted. I don't want to talk to people really. But actually, you turn to Jesus and you say, I'll do it for you though, Jesus because you are my king. And in that moment, you're saying, thine will be done, not my will be done. So that's the first one, obey. That's how we can treat him as king. The next one is we can submit. Now, I think this is sometimes even harder than obeying. And there's a wonderful uh, example of this in the book of Job, um, where he submits. He He's wrestling, he's struggling with the circumstances of life. Um, if you've read that book, you'll know that Job had a lot of material stuff. It all got swept away. Lots of people telling him wrong, telling him he's done wrong. They tell him, curse God and die already. Come on, Job, give up. And he refuses. He stays true to God. And he says this in chapter 23, uh, when everything's awful and, and all this is going on. He says, if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west... I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns, up, uh, turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And so among all Job's trials, among all his issues, he can't even sense God's presence. North, south, east, west, he can't find God's presence anywhere and yet, in that moment, in that scripture, he's submitting to the kingship of Jesus. He's accepting his circumstances are purifying and uh, 
through somewhat gritted teeth this week, we kind of had a discussion, Sophie and I, and I said, I think God's just trying to teach me what I'm trying to preach on Sunday, that actually we are to rejoice in suffering and accept circumstances as purifying, as turning us into pure gold. Um, I won't tell you how the rest of that conversation went, but it, <laughs> it was a moment where it was like, what? wow, that, that's what you're saying to me, God, about this. You're saying submitting to you means accepting, okay, this is awful and this is hard but you're still my king. And we've been through some hard stuff lately as a, a church, and I just sense God speaking to me particularly in that. Submitting to God's will in hard circumstances is hard but important. So there's that one, and then there's rely. Um, in order to treat Jesus as king, we must rely on him for everything we need. And simply put, having Jesus as our king must be enough for us. And again, personal experience. Um, I haven't always done this. I, I recognize it in my own life. I've looked to others for, a, for affirmation, security, motivation. And uh, actually, that's not the way it's meant to be. I, mean, I need to be returning to the king, going back to Jesus, to put my trust in him, to put my full weight on him with everything and not let anything else um, try and replace him in that way. I must put him first, and, uh, and that is, again, it's, it's easier said, so much easier said than done, and I appreciate that, but that's another way that we treat Jesus as true king. We actually put him above everything else. We rely on him. We look to him. We ask him as well, and uh, the fourth one and final one is expect. So do we come to Jesus with expectations that are worthy of a king? Tim Keller, um, famous preacher, puts it this way. He says, if you are too pessimistic with regards to what Jesus can do in your life, you are not treating him as king. And this one hit me right between the eyes because it made me shout at Jesus, help me then, help me change my expectations. And uh, there's a great John uh, Newton hymn who sums up how we should approach Jesus as king, how we should bring our expectations. It says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with, these, with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. And uh, I mean, I love a poem, I love a rhyme anyway. But that just speaks to me about how I pray. How am I, how am I praying when I come to Jesus, my King? And it'll, pray how we, it'll change how we pray in the coming weeks, won't it? Based on what we heard earlier on, it's going to change. But large petitions to Jesus we can bring. <laughs> we can bring those seemingly insurmountable obstacles to him and pray with expectation. Don't suppose that the problems in your life are too big for Jesus to change. If you do that, then you won't be treating him as king. And so that's the, the, the last one. Obey, submit, rely, and expect four ways how we can treat Jesus as king. And uh, I mean, I identify with all of them. <laughs> um, but in conclusion, we've, we've kind of done this this morning. We've been led to consider by this passage the authority of the king. The fact that actually all human beings, all of us say, I am my own until we choose to submit to the authority of the true King Jesus. And we are King's Church. We are the King's Church family. We belong to the King. It's in our name. I think that's significant as well. 
this morning. The next heading was the origin of, king, of the king. Because once we understand who Jesus is, once we understand that he came from heaven down to earth to die on that cross, to take us in, to be resurrected again in, in the hope of glory, it changes how we approach him. And we all must decide whether to love him or hate him. We all must decide whether to choose life through faith in him or death. We all must choose community or isolation. Being cut off by God from, uh, by, by sin forever or having that sin taken away by Jesus and putting ourselves under his authority and choosing life in that way. And that's where the Sanhedrin were led and they squirmed out of it. And lastly, treating Jesus as king. If we name him as king, we must treat him as such, declaring his kingship 